Our scripture reading for today will come from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16, through chapter 4, chapter, uh, verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happened to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. For better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands in the toil and a striving after wind. The grass wither, the flower fades, but the world of the Lord shall stand forever. All right. Well, thank you, Michael, and thanks, Colton. Um, I'm pretty sure I've, I've told this story before, and I, I feel like we're kind of at the place now as a church where y'all are going to have to suffer like my family and just hear the same stories over and over again. So forgive me if we've already entered that stage. Um, in September 2011, uh, our family moved overseas on a ministry assignment. Uh, and at that point in our, in our family, our children were five, three, and one. So the perfect time to take kids overseas, right? Um, so, so as we were getting ready to, to, to go over there, you know, we knew there'd be a lot of challenges. And one challenge that seemed like it was going to be particularly difficult was, was, was flying over there. It was going to be about a 24-hour start-to-finish time of, of traveling. And we're going to be, you know, kind of locked down on the plane and all that. And so, um, and so we kind of talked about how to prepare the kids for it. And there, there was one way you can kind of, kind of talk it up. just like, hey, we're going on an adventure. And we're going to be on a plane, and we're going to see mountains, and we're, they're going to watch a TV show on there, and it's just going to be, we're going to have some snacks, and it's going to be neat, neat, neat. Uh, or you could kind of say just the honest truth is that it's going to be kind of miserable. It's, and so we went with that one. <laughs> we, we said, hey, this is, going to be, this is going to be a tough time. It's going to be 24 hours. We're going to be in the car. We're going to be in a plane. Um, we're not going to be able to sleep in a bed. So just prepare yourself for what will be likely a miserable time. <laughs> And so, so anyway, we, we, we make the trip. We, we finally get to where we're going, right in our home. And it, it goes surprisingly well. We, we joked around that we've had more difficult trips to Chili's. Um, and so it, it just went fairly smooth. I mean, it wasn't easy. It was just a lot better. It wasn't the nightmare that, that we thought it was going to be. 
And and I, I think a lot of it had to do with the, the children's expectations and our expectations were rightly set. And, and, and having the right kind of expectations is, is going to definitely have an effect on how you enjoy or, or, or don't enjoy the, the ride. I think if we would have sold them on, hey, it's going to be a fun adventure, they would have been realizing that I'm, I'm locked down in this chair for hours upon hours. This is not a fun adventure. This is miserable. And so since we didn't sell them on that, they weren't disappointed in that. But here's the thing. Our expectations are deeply theological. And even if you're thinking, well, I haven't thought through expectations in theology, it's just like, no, no, you have. <laughs> Whatever you expect has some kind of roots in what do you think about God and what do you think about the way he's made our, our world. So we do have expectations, and they are theological. And what Ecclesiastes does is, is teaches us something that, that, that's a bit counterintuitive about what we should think. And, you know, Ecclesiastes is a bit cynical, but it's also true. It's, it's, it's cynical, but in a, in a bit of a good way. And, and, and one thing that it does is it says, if we lower our expectations, we'll be happier. And I know that seems odd and maybe counterintuitive, but, but Ecclesiastes is, is taking us to a place of joy. That's, that's where we're on, on, on the road to, it's a place of joy. But, but Ecclesiastes and, and the preacher, as he's referred to throughout this book, is kind of taking us to a place of joy, but through a back door, kind of like a secret door to this place. Uh, and so here's what the preacher is telling us that we need to know in our text today, and that should lead us towards joy. There's two things in our text today that I want to cover. There's a lot there. I won't be able to address all, the, all that I'd like to, but two things we see from our text is this. One, the world is wicked. It's a wicked world that we live in. And two, and it seems odd, the best you can do is enjoy your work. <laughs> Thanks, preacher. <laughs> okay. But I, I think, like I said, we're going through the back door towards joy. So first, let's talk about how the world is wicked. Look at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So the place where there should be justice, there was wickedness. The place where there should be righteousness, there was wickedness. And look, there are certain authorities and courts that are responsible to execute justice. But instead of justice, there's wickedness. Should it be legal and okay to kill babies? Well, there are courts that say, yes, that's fine. You should do that. In the place of justice, we find wickedness. And should we not expect that if we do indeed live in a wicked world? And there should be, uh, in the places where there should be righteousness, there's wickedness. And look, how sad has it been? It seems like over the last year or two particularly, but I know it's been happening for a long time. But how sad is it when we hear of these scandals involving pastors and churches? It's a wicked world and people and institutions of righteousness, the places that we think this, these are the people and the places of righteousness. And in these places, what do we find? Wickedness. We live in a wicked world. And in light of this, we see the preacher's response in verse 17. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So the preacher saw how wicked the world was, and he remembered that God will judge the wicked and the righteous. Now, does that judgment mean it's going to happen in the next life, or does that mean it's going to happen in this life? Well, well I'm not sure the, the text here gives us that distinction. 
All we know is that there's a time for it. There is a time for this judgment that we're reading about. Uh, we know there, there will be a judgment day, but we also see throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament and the New, God judging and punishing people in this life, on this side of judgment day. Under the new covenant, those who have believed the gospel and who have repented, their punishment has been paid in full. So if you are in Christ, you need not fear the condemnation and punishment of God. But you should know the Lord still does discipline his children. And sometimes that discipline is very severe. Even as we see in 1 Corinthians 11, even to the point of death, that discipline may come. Now, let's, let's move along to verse 18. Verse 18 to 21 says this, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast. For all is vanity, all go to one place. All are from dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. So here in this text, the preacher is comparing people with animals. And it seems like he's comparing them to animals in, in two ways. One is explicit and one I think is more implicit. First, explicitly, he's saying people are going to die just like animals. We will come and we will go just like the animals. And second, I think he's implying that people behave a lot like animal. They're, they're, they're ruthless like animals. Some of you guys know we have some, some animals at our, at our house. We have, we have a dog. We have some ducks. Um, somehow we got the crazy idea to get into the rabbit business, and so we got a bunch of rabbits. And by the way, I don't mean to self-promote here, but we have a special deal this week uh, for uh, buy one rabbit, get 10 free. So... Come talk to me, and that special is likely to be true next week too. So, but feel like it's a limited time offer. Uh, like I said, we got some ducks, we got some ponies, uh, two ponies and a miniature horse. And so, um, uh, one of the issues we had with with one of our ponies is we had one that was a bit dominant. And so sometimes when we'd feed them, the the more dominant one would would kind of overpower the the two smaller ones. And so we had this issue of trying to make it work. And it's not like the other two, two, two ponies were, were polite. They just got overpowered. If they were dominant, they would have probably behaved the same way. And so, so here's, the, here's the deal. People are like that too. Like we, we generally do whatever we can with whatever power we got. We maximize that influence. And so there's a sense where, where, where evil is on display is a lot of time a feature of someone who is the more dominant one or more powerful one. Now, I want to be clear as I get into this. I think we should reject uh, a somewhat Marxist view of the world where we look at everything through who's, who has power and, and who's oppressed. But at the same time, we should know that power works like a magnet to corruption. And the more power you get, the more tempted you're going to be towards corruption. And if you find yourself in a position of power, of authority, of having some kind of influence over others, then you should know that greed and corruption are coming to look for you. Power is like a magnet to corruption. Now, we, we, we tend to reject our, our own capacity for wick, wickedness because we live in a somewhat civil society. Uh, God in his mercy has, has us in a society that there's, there's benefits to, to morality and, and civility. 
And, um, um, you know, th- there's a sense where let's say you wanted something that someone else had. You're probably not going to steal that from them because you'll think I'll probably get caught. If I get caught, I could go to jail. I can get in trouble. I get in prison. I'd be embarrassed in the community. Uh, even further from that, are you thinking, I might kill them. If I kill them, then I can just take it. You're just not thinking that. And part of the reason you're not thinking that isn't just because of your own personal holiness. There's just restraints in society that things would go very poorly for you should you do something like that. In a free society with government and law enforcement, our collective wickedness is remarkably restrained. And we should just know that we are more animal-like than we probably realize. This is one thing I think is interesting about those uh, apocalyptic type movies that you guys have probably seen. You know, maybe it's a zombie apocalypse or some something crazy happens and society just total breakdown, and and people don't come together and say, "Hey guys, let's come together and and fix some problems." There usually is just madness. They're killing each other, stealing from each other because those restraints have been removed, and it's kind of the survival of the fittest. And so we don't understand that we that that's a probably an accurate representation of what would happen in an apocalyptic type event. And, and people who know the Bible, when they see these apocalyptic type movies, they're thinking, "Yeah, that that's probably right." And it's interesting to me that these filmmakers intuitively get this: that when you remove these restraints that make us more civil and less beast-like, that people are going to go crazy. It's that the restraints that are keeping us from becoming animals. And look, I'll tell you, it breaks my heart to hear about Christians who fall in these extraordinary bad ways, but it does not necessarily surprise me when it happens. Look, to be clear, I shouldn't say that we should expect everyone to fall and that you just assume anybody who has any kind of power, any kind of spiritual leadership, that they probably are, are real shady behind closed doors. I don't think we should think that. But I think we should understand that human beings' capacity for evil is very great, and it doesn't matter what kind of position or place they might be in, because what the preacher's saying in here is where I thought to find justice, there was wickedness. Where I thought to find righteousness, there was wickedness. We have remaining sin in us, and we would all be shocked to know that given the right circumstances, how far we might fall. And while that should give us a measure of fear, it shouldn't make us utterly hopeless. God has given us the Holy Spirit. The uh, Holy Spirit is changing us. It's giving us a, a, a growing sense of discomfort with our sin, and it's making us feel more and more at home with righteousness and godliness. But we need to expect the world to be wicked. We need to have an understanding and a bit of a healthy fear of the wickedness that lies within. And sadly, we should even expect wickedness in the place of justice. I'm not saying we should expect it from these people. I'm just saying we shouldn't be surprised when we find wickedness in the place where justice should be or wickedness in the place of righteousness. There will be corruption with those who are expected to carry out justice. We'll see this always. There will be corruption with those people and institutions deemed as righteous. There will be, quote, strong Christians who do awful, terrible things. And sadly, this definitely includes ministers, pastors, and sometimes churches in a collective way. And this reality, this awful reality, should be one of those back doors towards joy. 
I should be much worse than I am. My capacity for wickedness has been restrained by, by the society God has put us in, by the Holy Spirit. I'm not near as bad as I have the capacity to be. And, and, and as a collective community, our community is not as bad as it could be. So often, random people are kind and gracious. We see them at the store or whatever. People are friendly and polite. That does not go along with, 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 with our making as a society and the remaining sin in us. We should be more surprised at people being kind and gracious than we are surprised at people being mean. Years ago, uh, there was the, the uh, shooting at the Denver th- Theater, um, and a, a lot of people were just you know, asking the, the question that everybody was asking, like, why did this happen? And Al Mohler, seminary president, uh, wrote an article about it, and, and he had a challenging um, question in there. He said, you know, the, the question we always ask after this stuff is, you know, why did this happen? But the question we should consider is, why doesn't this happen all the time? Why don't we see this happen over and over? If our wickedness is as great as it is, why don't we see it happening more? And I would say it's by God's grace. We live in a wicked world among wicked people, and we know this from the scriptures, and we know it from history. When the circumstances pull the restraints, it is consistently revealed that we are more like animals, like beasts. So that's the world we live in. So if we live in a world, if we live in this great pool of wickedness, how should we respond? What should we think? Well, look at verse 22. Verse 22, at the end of all this, talking about how wicked the world is, verse 22, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. And that brings me to the next point. The best you can do is enjoy your work. You know, often we're encouraged uh, to to make our life count, to to change the world. I'm not necessarily saying that that's a bad idea, but it could eventually contradict what we see in Ecclesiastes. Encouraging someone to to reach for the stars, to change the world, might be like parents telling their young children on an overseas flight, hey, this is going to be a good time. This is going to be a fun adventure. And perhaps it would be better for the kids to expect it to be hard and then be surprised at the sweet little moments along the way where we see the mountains. A plane is neat. Here's a different world over here. And I think this is what the preacher has been teaching over the last few chapters in Ecclesiastes. And this is the third time now that we've heard him say, there's nothing better, dot, dot, dot. We saw it in 2.24. He says this, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toll. This also I saw is from the hand of God. There's nothing better here. And he's saying that he should enjoy his toil, his work. And then we see it again in chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. Says, I perceive that there is nothing better, there it is again, for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. Finding happiness in the little things of life, like eating, drinking, and your work. And isn't it interesting in all three of these places that work is in the mix? Our work is supposed to be a source of joy for us. And, and look, a lot of us might experience work to be more like a curse. 
I mean, that was the big idea I pushed out a few weeks ago about how in Genesis 3, we read that, that part of the curse of man is this curse on work. And look, while work might be cursed, there is still an, uh, the God-ordained potential to discover joy there, but it requires a bit of digging. We have to work through some things that will steal our joy in our work. And I'd like to briefly consider four things that we see, I think, bubble up uh, in, in chapter four, verse one through, through, through six, that can steal our joy when it comes to our work. So first, I want to look at how oppression kills joy in our work. Look at uh, chapter four, verse one. Again, I saw the, all the oppression that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was none to comfort them. So as I said earlier, people often don't handle power well. We, we've all seen someone go on a power trip, and look, likely there's not one soul in this room who hasn't been at least on a little bit of a power trip in some way, somehow. And throughout history, we have seen deadly oppression across the globe. Obviously, there was Hitler in the Holocaust, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, the African slave trade, and the list goes on and on through generations and generations. And we also see it on a much lesser scale, too, with harsh bosses and supervisors and coworkers, or, or even, even the silly stuff. You know what's funny? Every now and then you'll have like upperclassmen, lowerclassmen type stuff. And it's just like a little sliver of pretend power. And somehow that turns into hazing where people die. It's just insane. We just don't know how to handle power and oppression. And obviously in the big ways, and also in the smallest ways, will kill joy on a global scale, on a national scale, and on just the most local of scales. So whatever form oppression may take, it kills the possibility of finding joy in your work. So... For, for, for those of you who, who are in positions of, of power or influence or in whatever way, you should consider it a duty and a privilege that on your job description, this will never be there, I'm sure, but in your job description, your role, I believe, before the Lord, before what we're seeing in Ecclesiastes, is to cultivate joy among those who work for you. This is God's gift to them. God is going to give this gift of joy through work to people who work under you. And it's your job to cultivate joy in that place. Now, second, let's look at uh, chapter four, verse four. It says this, Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is a vanity and striving after the wind. You know, pride is what we experience when we're doing better than others. And envy is what we experience when others are doing better than us. So envy is really just the other side of the coin of pride. And while en envy can, in fact, be an effective motivator, like he doesn't even lie about this. He's saying like, yeah, people go to work. When envy's at play, people go to work. It is definitely a joy killer. And it will make a mess of our lives in ways we probably can't imagine. And we've seen this from the beginning in Scripture. The first murder, Cain and Abel. Abel did a bit better. Cain didn't like that. Abel's got to go. It messed with him. King Saul, King David. King Saul has killed a thousand. David is tens of thousands. King Saul's like, David's got to die. It was all consuming. 
Envy kills joy. You know, we're, we're familiar with the proverb that pride goes before destruction. Well, since envy is a form of pride, we should also know that envy goes before destruction. If you're feeling um, very aware of others and they're uh, passing you by on whatever scale it is that you value, and, and you find that to be a motivating factor for you, then watch out. <laughs> You're, you're about to mess with yourself in ways that's going to cause damage for you and those around you. Third, laziness will steal our joy in work. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. The, the, the folding of the hands is the way the Proverbs uh, often portray being lazy. For example, in Proverbs 6.10, it says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like an armed robber, uh, like an armed man. Being lazy isn't bad just because it's self-indulgent. It's bad because it'll eat you alive. And look, we've all had this happen, right? We, we, we've all found ourselves, we, we sat down to take a break. Hey, I'm just going to get lunch for, um, you know, I'm t- quick lunch, 15, 20 minutes tops. I'll tell you what, I'm going to watch a quick show while I do that. Four hours later, you know, you get up, and you're just like, what just happened? And then your productivity dropped away. You don't, you're, you're, you're kind of backwards. Or then maybe it's like, well, I didn't get it done anyway. Might as well finish out the series. Go ahead and knock this out. But look, laziness will eat you alive. And what it says here, it's like getting robbed. But you know who's robbing you? You. During our waking hours, we should be like ants, as the Proverbs say, constantly working. I'm not commending being a workaholic. I think, I think when we pull away from work in the evening, we should break and rest and, and take it easy. I think we should have days of rest, full days of rest. But during our waking hours, we should be hard at it. Being highly productive will bring joy into your life, and being lazy will take away joy from your life. And, you know, one challenge we have with this, I just kind of alluded to it a second ago, is that we live in the golden age of entertainment. Um, There's a phrase I probably said a thousand times as a kid that I've never heard my kids say, and it's not because they're they're great. It's just, here's the phrase, there's nothing on TV. I said that a thousand times. There's always something on TV. If you can't find something on, well, it's TV with internet, whatever, but there's always something on. And that's for kids and adults. I don't know who's, who's worse, but there's always something there. And whenever we indulge in that, it, it, it's going to take away joy. You're, you're never going to emerge from a five-hour YouTube, you know, dive, like get lost in a rabbit hole and think, huh, I'm glad I did that. That was a good five hours. It's going to take away joy. Fourth, striving after two handfuls. Uh, not being content with the, one fill, with, the, with the one handful steals our joy. Look at verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. I got to be honest here. I feel like this one, I'm preaching beyond my character. I, I don't think, Missy and I were talking about this yesterday morning, and I just think I need to, to chew on this one for weeks and months and years. But I'll, I'll try to preach, even though this is one of those, probably happens a lot, where I'm preaching beyond my character. But there, there's a contrast here. And, and the contrast is being content with what you have and keeping margin in your life. With, and, the, and it's being contrasted with trying to maximize your full potential to no end. 
And let me start with a negative aspect of attempting to maximize your potential. The idea of maximizing your potential is so American, it seems odd to even question it or to bring it up in a, in a bad light. Like, who's for, who's for maximizing your potential? All the hands go up, right? Well, I think we should be a, a bit more suspect of that than we are. Now, obviously, I'm not against anyone maximizing their potential. It's not like somebody does a great job at something. I should be like, ah, you're doing too good. Tone it down. It's not what I'm saying. But there, there is a form of this maximizing my potential that can become all-consuming, and it will steal your joy. And it removes the two things of your life that are keys to joy that we see in this verse. And you see what they are? They're contentment and quietness. Quietness is in peace, a sustainable pace, margin. Look, we are products of the American culture. We are ambitious and we are go-getters. The idea of just settling in any category is anathema to us, right? Like it's awful. But unlike America and unlike most popular self-help books, the Bible points us to contentment more than it points us to maximizing our potential. Consider 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 through 10, and consider this idea is that as Americans, as whatever, we, we tend to be ambitious, go-getters, maximize your full potential, and maybe that's the wrong target. Maybe it should be contentment. Let's listen to 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's one we should just chew on for weeks, right? For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. I wish he'd raise the bar a little bit more. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a, a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction or steal our joy. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away. They've wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, stealing their joy. What if your ambition declined two handfuls and instead, you made it your aim to find contentment and quietness, margin, peace. If we are not content with one handful and we're chasing after two handfuls in the name of maximizing our potential, then we have likely floated into the stream of the world. And what did we just say about the world? It's wicked. Man, it's deceiving, isn't it? But what if we realize that our greatest gain came not from maximizing our full potential, but instead being godly and content with what we have? Content with our work, content with our pay, content with our lot in life. As we see, that's what it is in chapter 322, that this is your lot. Now, you might think, you might not, but you might think the idea of our ambition being to work towards quietness, you might think, ah, 
this is one of those kind of Old Testament wisdom book things that's that kind of lacks the, the zeal of the New Testament. You know, the New Testament is like, man, we're 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 charging hell. We're we're going we're going you know we're, we're going to change the world. We're gonna we're gonna change the world for Christ. Well, consider what Paul told the Thessalonians in First Thessalonians chapter four verse eleven. He said this: aspire to do something. He said, aspire to do something. You know what he said? Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. Perhaps quiet work and a quiet life has been massively underrated. Let me conclude by saying this. We should view the world we live in as being closer to hell than heaven. It's more like hell than it is heaven. And we should be more surprised, therefore, when we encounter goodness. We should not be surprised when we see wickedness. We shouldn't be surprised when we see wickedness where there should be justice and righteousness. And for the unbeliever who dies in their sins, this life is as close to heaven as they will ever get. But for those who believe the gospel that Christ died for their sins, have turned from their sins to God, they should be encouraged that this life is as bad as it gets. This is as close to hell as you will ever be. And because of Christ and his work and his work alone, we eagerly long for him to return to make this wicked world right and to make all things new. And while we wait in this wicked world, we should enjoy the simple gifts he gives us along the way. And these sweetest joys seem to be, from what the scriptures are teaching, in the simplest of things, eating, drinking, and your work. Our God gives us the simple joys in abundance. And you know why he does that? Because our God is kind and merciful to sinners. He's kind and merciful to sinners who live in a wicked world. And that's good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we see that we do live in a wicked world. We see it with our own eyes, and we see it in your holy word. Would you help us to understand that in a way that we are surprised by joy and the uh, simple joys you give us along the way? Would you help us to have uh, right expectations, uh, not pessimistic in a way that we would be, um, that we would lack joy, but realistic in a way that cultivates joy and that we are surprised by joy on a daily basis with the kindness that we encounter with a, a, a good work being done well. And so would you bless us in that way? And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray.